Les Liaisons Dangereuses in 5x5. I'm Katrina Seth, I'm the Marshall Foch Professor of French Literature at Oxford, and today I'm talking to Christopher Hampton, from page to stage. My name's Christopher Hampton, I'm a playwright and translator. Christopher, do you remember the first time you read Les Liaisons Dangereuses? Very much so. It was at Oxford, it was part of a scheme uh, devised by my tutor Merlin Thomas to help us decide which period of literature we wanted to specialise in. So he took a representative piece of work from uh, every 50 years or so, and the late 18th century um, book that he asked us to read was Les Liaisons Dangereuses, so I would have been about 19, I guess. And so what do you remember about that first encounter with the text? Well, I remember it being a ferociously uh, demanding page-turner. I, I, I just loved it. I thought it was the best, certainly the best epistolary novel I'd ever read, and one of the best novels, Too Cool. I used to joke and say it was the best sex education a boy could hope for. Well, that might get new readers interested in the text. So do you know when the decision to adapt the novel and turn it into a play actually arose? Yes, in 1976, the three new theatres of the National Theatre were opening at the South Bank, and they were asking people in to see what they had in their locker. I was asked to translate, I think, Les Fausses Confidences of Marivaux, and I went in to see them, and having thought about it for a while, and said, look, I, I think translating Marivaux is very, very difficult, and I, for one, am not prepared to, to do that. But if you're interested in the 18th century in France, what about a dramatisation of Les and Dangereuses? This furrowed brows that no one had read it. About six weeks later, they called me up and said, no, we don't think that'll work. And I said, why not? And they said, uh, well, you know, the two main characters never meet. I said, well, I sort of had it in mind to make them meet. He said, no, no, let's think of something else. So it was about eight years later, I think, yes, seven or eight years later, I got an open commission from the Royal Shakespeare Company. In other words, they said, write what you like, but write something that will fill the Barbican, they said to me, which was also a new theatre at the time. I'd been planning it for so long, I just sat down and wrote it and sent it in to them. I think they were not at all pleased. And they demoted it from the Barbican to the other place in Stratford, which was a 150-seat theatre with a tin roof sitting in a car park, and scheduled it for 23 performances at the end of the season. And the rest is history, as they say. It is, yes. Were there any particular challenges in adapting an epistolary novel for the stage? Well, it was very, very difficult on, on all sorts of levels. And what was liberating and freeing about it was that it's a novel with a great plot, but very little dialogue, so that left me a great deal of uh, leeway. But on the other hand, you had to adjust the whole plot so that these characters were in the same place at the same time. So I started off with a great sort of geographical diagram where I moved people from uh, town to country and so on and so forth until I had everyone where, where I wanted them to be. And the, the play was very, very much planned, carefully planned in advance, in the sense that I wanted to sort of reproduce the, as a kind of a mathematical uh, aspect to Lilies and Dangereuses. If you look at the, it's in four sections and they're roughly speaking the same number of letters in one and three and two and four and so on and so forth. So I wanted to try and subliminally reproduce that effect. So I 
I wrote the play in six groups of three scenes. Each group contained a scene which covered a great many letters, a scene which covered a few letters, and a scene that covered only one letter. Not necessarily in the same order, but these six groups of, of three scenes. And each time the sequence of the three scenes is a little shorter than the one before so that you get a kind of sense of acceleration as the plot goes on till towards the end the scene's very short so all of that was planned in advance what was difficult was finding a language for it i started off by um doing a kind of pastiche 18th century english which was sort of fun but it i thought well it, it's sort of distracting and it's not really helping the story along i was just amusing myself by doing it really so then I tried a sort of strictly contemporary style, and that didn't seem to work either. So in the end, I settled for a quite elaborate sort of 18th century syntax um, and a 20th century vocabulary. As soon as I started that, it seemed to work, and then the writing went very, very quickly. I think I wrote it in seven weeks. So after this long maturation process, you write this play very quickly, and how do the actors react to the text? Well, we had um, a remarkable cast for the play who were all in Shakespeare plays in the main theatre and sort of moonlighting to do this little French play. Alan Rickman, of course, was the original Valmont. Lindsay Duncan was the original Merteuil. But apart from them, we had Juliet Stevenson, we had Fiona Shaw, we had Leslie Manville, a really extraordinary cast. And slowly, as I used to go up to Stratford for rehearsals during the summer which is quite a long rehearsal period because they were doing several plays at once. And slowly, in the rehearsal room, we started to feel that something remarkable was happening and the actors really warmed to it, I think. And by the time we opened, we felt very confident. We felt we had something exceptional. Do you think the actors knew the novel before they saw the play, before they saw the script for the play? No, actually very few people in England knew the novel, I think, in the early 80s. The translation was in Penguin, of course, and... Uh, a lot of people who were interested in those sorts of things had read it, but I don't think any of the people that I was involved with in the theatre had actually come across it. So they discovered it through the play? Yes. As much of the audience would have done? Most of the audience, I would think, in this country. Then we have the next stage after the play. It's turned into a film in which you're involved. After the success of the play, this has never happened to me before or since, all the main... Hollywood Studios came after it and made offers. This was a further source of dispute, I'm afraid, with the Royal Shakespeare Company because they wanted me to take the highest offer. And I wanted to retain some control. So I found myself turning down all these big offers because I asked them if I could co-produce it and they would say no. And eventually there was a company called Lorimar, a television company that was just venturing into film, and they offered me the chance to co-produce it the film. So I agreed to go with them for considerably less money. And the Royal Shakespeare Company, who were expecting a percentage of this money, vetoed. So we were at a stalemate until suddenly in the summer of um, 87, Milos Forman, who had previously made Amadeus and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, both of which had won Oscars for Best Picture, announced that he was going to make a film of Lillian's and Dodgers, at which point everybody threw their hands up and said... Uh, OK, get on with it. And I had to guarantee that we would get our film out first. As it turns out, it was very, very lucky that I turned down all those offers because nobody in the studios would ever have gone up against Milos Forman. Whereas Lorimar, who were in 
some considerable financial trouble themselves, decided to throw caution to the winds. And luckily, Stephen Frears, who I very much wanted to direct it, he was the only director who was bold enough also to go up against Milos Forman. All the fancy directors that I had meetings with headed for the hills as soon as they heard Milos was on the warpath. And so it was a miracle that the film was made. Absolute miracle. And, of course, it's always a miracle, a separate sort of miracle, if a film is made that approximates to the script you wrote. But because we were under the radar and Lorimer had other fish to fry, in fact, they did go bankrupt around about that time, we were able to make precisely the film we had in mind. Do you think that the experience of the film means that you had to rethink the text again, in a sense? Because were you going back to the novel for the, the film? film? The film is quite a bit closer to the novel than the play. For one thing, in the play, I reasoned that, since they weren't writing letters to each other but actually talking to each other, the packet of letters by which Matteo was destroyed at the end did not exist, and therefore she got away with it. So that's how the play ends. There's a danger in adapting plays for the cinema, and that is that if you don't rethink them sufficiently, they sort of smell of the theatre in a not particularly helpful way. So I really wanted to start again, which I was enthusiastically seconded by Stephen, who wild horses that drag him to the theatre, and he gets very nervous if a scene lasts for longer than a page. So he was saying, let's not have these great swathes of dialogue. Let's try and make it visual. And certainly the first half of the film is in many ways less constrained than the first half of the play. In the second half, as we zeroed in towards the end of the film, it got more and more like the play and it got more and more claustrophobic, which was appropriate. It is a different experience, I think, partly because the theatre version and the film version had two brilliant magnetic actors who both came at the part, however, from different directions. Alan Rickman was magisterially icy and also had a marvellous sense of the language, shaping the language as he spoke. Malkovich was much more emotional and uh, strange and had an almost maternal relationship with Mertay, which was very, very interesting. But it just delivered the piece in a completely different way. Did you know the film, before you wrote your play, did you know the film which Vadim and Vaillant had made in 1959? The Vadim film was my first encounter with Lelias and Audrey's. I snuck out of Lansing College, where I was a boarder, and went to the Continental Cinema in Brighton, which showed all these deliciously naughty films. I was about 14, but I blagged my way into the film, and I remember it quite vividly. You've adapted several stories, like Les Orangeuses, or written several plots based on French literature. Do you consider French literature to be an important source for you as a playwright? Oh, very much so. I had a very charismatic French teacher at Lansing called Harry Guest. The vital moment when I was working out which university I was going to go to, what I was going to study, he said to me, don't read English like everybody else. You'll read all those books in the course of time. If you read French and German, you'll have two more literatures open to you, which I consider to be the best piece of advice that anyone ever gave me. David Hare once said to me, I was the only uh, person in our profession who seemed to be using his education. Can we ask you a couple more questions about your time at Oxford and the reading you did there? You read Lilies en Angeuse and enjoyed it. Can you remember any other texts which you... In, in well, yes, I was very. I was really a 19th century man. I, I absolutely loved the great novelists and Baudelaire and Rimbaud and Verlaine. That was my favourite period. 
But I was also very interested in pre-revolutionary literature, of which Les Liaisons is the most conspicuous example. I was very interested in why it might be that just at that particular historical moment, the prevailing literary genre appeared to be pornography, either light or heavy. Discussing this one day with Merlin Thomas, we decided that I was allowed to do an essay on Restif de la Bretonne and the Marquis de Sade and Crébillon Fils and Diderot and all of those texts, which it turned out were all locked in separate cupboards in the Taylorian, uh, so that I had to have special permission from the Vice-Chancellor to be able to read them in the first place before I could write an essay on them, which was very good fun and much more fun than plodding through Rousseau, in my view. Who's your favourite character in French literature? Favourite character in French literature? Just running through my head is what Oscar Wilde said when asked what the greatest tragedy of his life was, and his answer was the death of Lucien de Rubempré. <laughs> but I think, for me, I hesitated to say Merte, but that's really who I find an unprecedented character in literature and really, really fascinating. And would Les Liaisons Dangereuses be the one text you'd take with you to your desert island? No, I think I'm afraid when I did do Desert Island Discs, I chose Proust. I thought they'd take up more time because uh, that would be fun to spend a great deal of time paddling about in. Thank you.